0: Welcome back to the Independent Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the ins and outs of practitioner research in independent school classrooms. I'm Christina Tucker, Program Coordinator for the Independent School Teaching Residency Program, also known as ISTAR, at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate
1: School of Education. And I'm Sonia Rosen, Director of Inquiry and Reflective Practice for ISTAR. One thing that our students grapple with a lot as they start their projects is how to collect data, or even how to define what data is. Given how most people tend to think about research, it's easy for our teaching fellows to imagine that the only data that matters can be found in a spreadsheet or graph. So when our fellows begin the inquiry process, we work with them to redefine what data means to them. We talk about data as consisting of any information that helps a researcher explore and ultimately answer a research question.
0: And the work we do with our students is also aimed at helping them understand what it means to produce data that will do just that. In teacher research, we think of data collection not just as a process of noticing and documenting what already exists in front of us, but also as the task of devising new opportunities to notice things that we wouldn't normally notice about our students or our teaching. Teacher researchers
1: ask themselves, how might I integrate data collection into my teaching? The fellows featured in this episode came up with creative ways to weave data collection through their teaching as they worked to refine their questions and respond to challenges that arose in their research. We'll begin with a segment by Ange Masioa, who discovered near the beginning of her inquiry project that she had to
0: find some way to bridge the gap between what her students were self-reporting about their sense of efficacy and what she was seeing in her students' behavior. Given this challenge, Ange had to hone her research tools to develop questions and processes that would yield evidence of her students' (laughs) self-efficacy.
2: My name is Angelina Masoya, and I'm currently a second year teaching fellow in science at Hopkins School in New Haven, Connecticut. Today we'll be talking about how to collect data for teacher inquiry that includes student voice but is also mindful of students' varying degrees of self-awareness or willingness to assess themselves honestly. So today we'll be looking at some research, talking with some of my colleagues at Hopkins, and coming up with some strategies for asking our students questions that circumvent their developmental variance in self-awareness. For some personal background, I became interested in self-awareness as part of my inquiry project, which seeks to answer the question, how can an explicit and consistent teaching of science practices affect student self-efficacy in science classes? As an 8th grade science teacher, I noticed several of my students unsure of their abilities and more self-directed activities, and several students who were unable to connect those self-directed investigations to content that was taught more traditionally. At the beginning of the year, I embarked on my inquiry journey to examine this question. In addition to my teacher field notes, classroom video and transcripts, and artifacts of labs and assessments, I also wanted to gain some insight into my students' reactions. I created self-efficacy surveys, which asked students to rank their level of agreement that they are confident or are not confident, that they can perform specific science skills and learn specific content. I've also asked for written reflections and have conducted one-on-one interviews. As it turns out, students were very confident in their science skills um, and seemed to demonstrate, on paper at least, high levels of self-efficacy from the very beginning. In fact, on the self-efficacy scales, which students reported on a scale of one to 10, my students averaged a 9.1 on the second day of school. Um, So at this point, I was feeling pretty discouraged because my entire project was focused around the premise that I needed to develop my students to be more self-efficacious and be more independent and confident learners and be able to connect content, Um, but I wondered how much I can improve my students' self-efficacy if they already seemed to be comfortable, confident, and able to make these connections between hands-on learning and the material. I became discouraged that my research wasn't necessary. Then the first self-directed lab activity came. And all those students were given a prompt, some direction, a list of materials, and told that they were to design their own procedure, which excited many, um, but at the same time, they would not proceed to their next step without first finding me and asking if it was right. Yet in their reflections, they all spoke about how much fun the lab was and that it went pretty well overall. And they seemed to gloss over the fact that much of it didn't actually end up coming from them and they're designing their own procedure. A lot of it actually, came from me giving them some pretty major direction along the way because they're so nervous about doing specific next steps. So after looking at some research, this positive report makes some sense. Um, Early in children's lives, around age four to five, they develop theory of mind, where they can think about others' thoughts, emotions, and perspectives as being different from theirs. This development is the first step in having students seriously think about their own emotions, thoughts, and ways of thinking. From there, estimation of one's own abilities develops over time with no real found improvement until about fourth grade, according to a 2015 paper by and Alharth. My eighth grade students are still developing their full metacognitive abilities and self-awareness of thoughts and emotions, which happens in science, but also in other eighth grade classes. As explained by one of my colleagues who also teaches eighth grade. They're, they're doing things,
0: right, uh, but don't quite have the awareness of why the things they're doing are helpful to them.
2: In addition to their varying development of self-awareness, students might also be unwilling to admit their comfort levels depending on their own preferences and their audience. According to a 1990 article in the Journal of Social Psychology by Jonathan Brown, students, or people in general, are more likely to seek out evaluative information or evaluate their own abilities when they are confident the evaluation will be positive. Self-enhancement desires may be partially to blame for the high-reported survey data and interview-slash-reflection data if students were confident in their self-directed skills based on previous science grades or if they wanted to increase the likelihood or of their self-enhancement. Additionally, some students may not have wanted to report low self-efficacy levels and submit it to their teacher for fear of what their teacher would then think about them. So how can we ask questions and collect data that keeps student voice in inquiry but provides accurate data without these potential errors? A couple that I've come up with have been to ask questions without actually asking the questions. So what this means is to be super specific about the questions um, and ask the students to also provide specifics. So I found that when I spoke in very general terms, if I gave them a question like, are you comfortable using graduated cylinders? My students would be like, oh yeah, for sure. I am definitely comfortable using graduated cylinders. But when you actually gave them a graduated cylinder and asked them to use it in a lab situation, or if you asked them what tool would be a good way of measuring the volume of this fluid, they couldn't always connect that question to the use of graduated cylinders and they couldn't always um, be very confident about if they were doing it right. I found a way to provide a scenario for students to respond to. So um, anchoring that question in a specific example that would then ask them to provide some specifics. Um, For example, giving them a lab and then asking questions about that specific lab helped them to self-assess a little better. And then I also found that collecting data in the moment and not after the moment was really helpful. So at first I gave them reflections that was a couple days after the lab ended, that first lab that we did, um, and then I also gave them self-efficacy sales that were not on the days that we were doing self-directed activities, and students weren't really able to access their metacognition during those moments because they weren't experiencing it at that moment. Um, So if you look back on something, you might remember it a little bit differently, and that wasn't really helpful for gaining accurate data into what students were actually feeling and thinking during the lab. Another thing I found was that I really needed to dig into students' word choice. So a lot of students on their first reflection told me that the first lab was a lot of fun. And I wasn't totally sure what that meant because I think that my definition of fun is probably a lot different than my 8th graders definition of fun, and even amongst themselves, they probably have very different definitions. So I used another data collection tool, another sort of reflection in a different format that would ask them to describe what their ideas of fun was and uh, what that fun could look like in an academic context. So that was able to give me a little bit more information about what they were actually saying, even if they weren't saying words that I was expecting to see in response to my prompts. Um, Another thing I might try in the future is having somebody else collect the data or conduct the interviews with students um, for the reason that they may think that their interview answers will uh, impact how they are performing in the class if they give them to me. So I may try having students speak with different teachers or even do some peer Interviewing. So, I hope this is helpful for anyone who's conducting teacher inquiry who may be unsure of how to account for their students' self awareness while collecting data from their students. It's certainly something that, as you can tell, I've worked through a bit, um, but I'm still struggling with.
1: Like Ange, Hannah Solis Cohen had to wrestle with the challenge of defining her inquiry and consider how to create curricular interventions that helped her students make personal connections to history, which she found didn't always work out so well. In her segment, she talks about encountering some difficult and frankly jarring moments in her teaching. Reflecting on the moments of dissonance was ultimately what helped her to figure out how to move forward with her curricular unit and her inquiry project.
3: My name is Hannah Solis-Cohen, and I am a second-year fellow in history at the Hopkins School. Welcome to my segment of Independent Inquiry. In this segment, we will explore the role of flexibility in action research throughout the inquiry process as a way of learning from your students. When I think about my inquiry journey this year, the most important lessons for my research came from my students. However, in order to learn from my students, I had to be flexible with my inquiry structure and embrace the true meaning of action research, which I define as the ultimate measure of flexibility and reflection. Without embracing flexibility, I would have never arrived at my current question, which is what happens when I incorporate reading and writing first person narratives in ninth grade history? Instead, I would have been stuck searching for a way to produce a specific outcome with my inquiry, to try and prove something to be true instead of remaining open and reflective to where my students decided to take me. Let's try something here. Close your eyes. Picture your classroom. Picture your best moments and your worst moments as a teacher your big problem of practice. Now open your eyes. I remember going through this exercise during June Pen Week as I was working through developing my question. I remember puzzling through the story of my wondering, searching for that perfect problem to explore. Everyone kept saying, keep your question open, keep it value neutral. This is an exploration of where you will learn from your students. However, I was worried that I would just never ace my question. After searching through my essential commitments, past paths connections, empathy, historical thinking, the list goes on, finally came up with what I thought was the perfect question. How can I use narrative to incorporate historical habits of mind in a ninth grade survey course? Fast forward to my first month of school. I found myself stuck trying to prove a formulaic prediction that my question had originally set me up for. If I incorporate narrative, then I must be focusing on develop a historical habit of mind. I created charts that lined up all the historical habits of mine that I had defined in my literature. I made sure that every day I was working to collect data for my students. Assignment after assignment, surveys, discussions, my classroom began to look more like a lab than a place for reflective practice, and my students began to notice. I remember a conversation with my mentor one afternoon in early October. We were looking over a chart I had created, and he stops and says, What if it doesn't work? What if you can't prove what you're trying to prove? Are you learning and are your students learning? This conversation forced me to take a step back and examine both my question and my approach. What I realized was that in going through the process of reflection and reviewing the tensions and problems in my practice with my current question structure, I was actually going through the process of teacher inquiry and action research. I wasn't failing. My question wasn't wrong. I was learning from my students and growing from what they were trying to tell me. I was actually doing teacher inquiry. Learning from one's own research journey, the art of being reflective, flexible, and working within a cyclical research framework is at the heart of action research. According to Kolk, 2009, in her article, Embrace Action Research, Improve Your Classroom, and Tell the Story, I quote, action research is a process of investigating and inquiry that occurs as action is taken to solve a problem. You might consider action to refer to the change you are trying to implement, and research to refer to your improved understanding of the learning environment. With this understanding in mind, I took a deep breath and decided to change my question. Instead of trying to prove that narrative could develop historical habits of mine, I decided to explore what could happen if I incorporated first-person narrative into my practice. By staying open to the wide range of findings, comments, and skills, I could more truly embrace action research by following where my students led me, reflect on, my, on that data, and then plan. As Koch argues, action research is an iterative process. The data you collect and your analysis of it will affect how you approach the problem and implement your action plan during the next cycle. One of my colleagues told me to think of action research as a closed circle or even like a symbol on a recycling bin with arrows pointing towards your next step. First, you identify your problem of practice, then you develop an action plan, collect your data, analyze your data, form conclusions from that data, and then adjust your theory and begin again. While it's easy to believe that as a teacher researcher, you'll be able to learn from your data and complete the action research cycle, I believe that flexibility within the action research framework is the true key to learning from your students in the inquiry process. Within the action research cycle, using your data to inform your next steps in the last step of a cycle. However, students learn, grow, and change in ways that don't always line up with your action research cycles. You might plan a specific intervention, but your students' reactions and feedback will take you in a different direction. This happened to me. During our unit on the Protestant Reformation after reading Praise of Folly by Erasmus, a Christian humanist who criticized the Catholic Church, I asked students to embody the perspective of Erasmus and write an inner monologue what Erasmus was thinking as he was writing the satirical roast of the church. I thought this would be an excellent way to see if writing first-person narratives could help students better analyze and understand primary sources. Needless to say, the reaction I got was so different than what I was expecting. We were sitting around our Harkness table the next day, and I asked my students if they thought completing this assignment helped them better understand Erasmus. Almost immediately, two students jumped in and said no. Here is a quote from a student during that class from the video transcript. It was really challenging to get inside Erasmus's head. I felt like I was making stuff up, which is not history, it's creative writing. This feels like English. I want to deal directly in fact. The assignment didn't seem to fit that because we have no idea what he could actually be thinking. Finally, one student said, history should never be creative. We can't assume whether or not something happened or pass judgments based on assumptions. I remember going home that night thinking, wow, my students really hate what I'm doing here. How am I going to keep this project going? I decided to reach out to my inquiry mentor, Anna Robinette, and she said, write all of this down. This is really important tensions in your project. Now use this experience to inform your next move. Take the students' feedback and harness it. Learn from them and move forward with this in mind so you can not only learn more about first-person narrative, but who your students are as learners. This advice motivated me to use this feedback from my students to inform my next intervention. Their valuable feedback pushed me to design a new project that was grounded in research and historical writing with less creativity. Without being open and flexible to student feedback, I would have never been able to continue with my project and grow as an educator. In order to be flexible throughout the inquiry process, a teacher must follow where their students take them and the story they progress, um, their progress attempts to tell within the Action Research Framework. If I had not listened to my students and followed my data, I would have remained stuck trying to prove something that I was determined to see through because of my own anxiety. I wouldn't have been able to move my project forward because of their feedback from my students. Inquiry is not about proving a theory, it's about getting to know your kids. True reflective practitioner must stay open and flexible to the information their students provide because you'll always be surprised by the points of tension your students can create in your inquiry to make your project that much more meaningful. I hope that my podcast episode can be an important lesson for the importance of learning from your students and trusting from the reflective process. Thank you.
0: episode with Andrea Rodas, who used the focus of her inquiry, growth mindset, as a way to think about her own identity as a teacher researcher and how she could produce data that helped drive the inquiry process. Her teacher journals became a way for Andrea to internalize the same growth mindset that she was trying to support her students to develop. Similar to how Hannah drew on her students' critiques as data to help her rethink her practice, Andrea used her teacher journal as a process of self-reflection that became her pathway to changing her teaching practice and developing insights about fostering growth mindset among her students.
4: Journey with Growth Mindset started two years ago during my first summer session at UPenn. I remember reading this article, Implicit Theories of Intelligence by Carol Dweck and Lisa Blackwell, and thinking, this information is (laughs) life-changing. How did more people not know that if they only believed their intelligence could be improved, they would succeed more? During that first summer, I started a journal about my relationship with learning. These entries could range from my memories of a positive and a negative learning experience to my goals for myself in my first year teaching. These reflections were key in realizing I had had a fixed mindset for most of my academic life. When something new was not immediately easy for me or did not bring me immediate success, I tended to shy away from it. Because math had always been harder for me, I believed, to my core, that I was not good at it. The concepts did not come so readily as it seemed for others, so I ended up connecting this immediacy of success and perceived ease with being good at something. I was also convinced that certain things were just innate, in one's blood, so to speak. Because it was what I had been told, by family, by society... And by media. Boys were good at math and science and sports. Girls were good at writing and being creative. Rare were the individuals who could be good at everything. So I typecasted everyone, including myself, into a particular kind of intelligence or talent. It had never occurred to me to apply the same practice and care I gave for the things I enjoyed like writing, to the things I didn't enjoy so much, like math. With these ideas fresh in my mind, it was so much more devastating to step into my classroom in September and realize I was not the only one struggling with fixed mindset. My students, especially the younger and newer ones, were constantly giving up on themselves. They voiced out loud that they were not good as if it was an indisputable fact. Worse, these shared outbursts would usually build camaraderie in the class once others realized they were not alone in perceiving themselves as not good. Sometimes it even became a competition for students to prove just how bad they were at Spanish. I felt helpless. In my speeches and lectures to the class, explaining the importance... Of believing you could change and grow your language abilities. My words fell to deaf ears. I spent so much time and energy last year meeting with students individually to help them develop those skills they would need when faced with challenging activities. Slowly but surely, some students did get more comfortable and confident. But I knew I needed to focus on growing mindsets in my inquiry project to make these effects more widespread and less taxing on me. By then, I believed that all of my research into Dweck's work had been sufficient in growing my own growth mindset. However, it took me embarking on my inquiry project to hit lows in my own comfort and confidence as an effective teacher, to realize I was far from claiming I had a growth mindset. I had expected that my students, just as I had expected for myself, that learning about growth mindset would be enough to change perspectives on learning something new. And boy was I wrong. The blows felt personal now when I still heard students talking about how bad they were. I took this as evidence of my interventions not working, and thereby as evidence that I was not a successful teacher. If I had made all these useless changes to my pedagogy and curriculum in hopes of changing students' minds, what was I doing teaching? It was in rereading my journal entries this year that I again realized I had a fixed mindset. Now it was about being an educator and allowing myself the time and patience to grow. Because teaching does not come innately, it's developed. Let me repeat this for the people in the back and for myself. Effective teaching does not come easily or with immediate success. Effective teaching comes after mistakes and constant learning to improve your craft. This is the hardest lesson I have ever had to learn, but has also been the most important and crucial to my outlook on the career I chose for myself. Teaching is now my former math class. I will practice even when it gets hard. I will learn from the setbacks and mistakes. And I will apply what I've learned to get better and feel better about my teaching. In a nutshell, halfway through the inquiry process, I took my own advice and applied the same self-regulated learning practices I was teaching my students to what I was doing with my inquiry project. Self-regulated learning is basically a cyclical process of three phases, goal-setting, self-monitoring, and self-evaluation. With my teacher checklists and educational philosophy at hand, it was easy to come up with the essential goals I wanted to keep for my day-to-day teaching practice. I always keep these goals in mind while journaling. Journaling for me became my main form of self-monitoring. What am I doing day in and day out to reach my goals? What are some new things I can try out in class? After writing an entry, I will go back, scanning what I wrote for negative self-talk or self-doubt, and write revised statements in the margin that speak more to a growth mindset. For example, I change sentences like, I did a bad job today with keeping the class engaged, to, I'm going to look up some ways that I can keep my class better engaged. This is also then part of the self-evaluating phase because you take stock of the progress you're making and adapt where necessary. You reflect on what has been successful and what has not been so much. I reread my entries, re-watch videos of my classes, and condense that information into my own critical feedback. As teachers, we are always reacting to our students' feedback, but how often are we reacting to our own? Take a few seconds to remember what your goals are as an educator and reflect on how you can make those small changes tomorrow. I hope that wherever you are in your growth mindset journey, that you have found my journey relatable and catalyzing for your teaching practice. It is thankfully never too late to start.
1: Andrea demonstrates that theoretical work around growth mindset can offer us a framework for understanding the practitioner-researcher's relationship to data collection. Ange, Hannah, and Andrea all put this principle into practice discovering that data collection involves learning and growing from the things that don't work, just as much as from the smashing successes in their teaching. Well, folks, that
0: wraps up this installment of the Independent Inquiry Podcast. In our next episode, we'll hear from three fellows who have identified key theoretical frameworks that form the basis for their inquiry projects. Their segments will show how they were able to translate these conceptual models into their classroom practice as a foundation for their research.
1: To learn more about the iSTAR program and the practitioner inquiry portion of our curriculum, take a look at the links included in our program notes. Thanks to the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education for its support of the iSTAR program and this podcast. Thanks also to our iSTAR program faculty, including all the program directors, mentors, and other teaching faculty who have helped to guide our fellows through this process.
0: Independent Inquiry is produced by me, Christina Tucker, and by Sonia Rosen. Our logo was designed by ISTR alumna
1: Kaylee McGonagall,
0: and our music is Big Easy Horns by Origami Pigeon. Thanks so much for listening!